Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18 today in a, in a sermon specifically just for this day, for Christmas Day. Um, we're breaking away from our sermon series through the book of Genesis for today. And again, we're going to be in Hebrews 12, or Hebrews 2, sorry, verses 14 through 18. So as you're turning there, you know, thinking about Christmas and all the, 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 of course, the important things of Christmas that we'll be talking about today, but also some of the other fun things that we do with family, and part of that is exchanging gifts, and, and I remember as a child receiving gifts from my parents and others, and you do as well, and many of you perhaps have already done that in your family this week. Um, and one of the things I remember as a child sometimes receiving is something I know that you as a parent have certainly done from time to time, and that is to purchase a knockoff product that looks like the real thing, right? That looks like the specific toy they were wanting or product they were wanting. And you, you just buy something that looks like it in a lot of ways, but doesn't quite cost the same amount as the real one. It's a knockoff product. I remember, my parents are here, their memory probably is quite different than mine. But I remember a wanting a swatch. Remember the swatches in the 80s? The swatch watches, and they had little swatch guards. They were, came of all kinds of fluorescent colors, very 80s product. And I wanted a swatch really bad, and we eventually got a swatch. But the year before we got the swatch, we got a swatch-like watch product, all right, that wasn't quite a swatch. Um, but, you know, we, we enjoyed it, and we, we, we lived with it. I think it broke pretty quickly. Um, but, but we all have done that before and given our kids just the, the, the knockoff brand. Well, you know... Thinking about that, I, I went and found some knockoff brands online, so I'm going to show you some this morning. First of all, some knockoff products, you can tell right away that that's not the real thing. The Swatch, I think, kind of fooled me for a little while, or the Swatch-like watch thing. But that Winnie the Pooh just really doesn't cut it. I mean, if your child wakes up and sees that, they will have some problems down later on in life, all right? That one's easy to tell. That is a bootleg Winnie the Pooh. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. So here is a game or a pencil toppers. It's not quite angry birds. It's ill-tempered birds, okay? It looks the same, and if your kids can't read, you got it, okay? Just get them ill-tempered birds. Um, sometimes it's, you know, you just hope your kids can't read at all. Instead of Godzilla, you get Big Fella, Sounds kind of the same, Godzilla, big fella. You know, um, you know, if your kids have been wanting a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle outfit, why not just get a pubescent frog of silent war outfit? Pubescent frog of silent war. I don't know. I'm not sure the marketing people that help these companies that do the knockoffs really graduated real high in their marketing class. I don't know if you just look for a synonym of teenage and... You know, another green animal, and ninjas are shadowy figures of silent war. So we'll just call it the pubescent frog of silent war and hope little Johnny doesn't notice. Um, instead of, you know, for the little kids in here, instead of getting that game Guess Who, which my kids love, just get Who's Left, okay? Who's Left? You don't have to pay the extra few dollars for the real thing. And instead of buying the movie, the Pixar movie Up, just get What's Up, okay? 
I love the tagline on this. I mean, this just sounds like an equally compelling yet less acclaimed movie, doesn't it? Listen to the tagline. Balloon to the rescue. All right? What's up? Or, um, of course, I had to get Star Wars in there. Instead of getting Star Wars toys, get Stars Warriors Wars Yours toys. Okay? <laughs> Stars Wars Yours. Apparently, they have three action figures. They have Karate Farmer, Door Ladder, and Wise Puppet. This is Wise Puppet. Okay? I don't know if they watched the movie and one of them said, you know, that's not a real person, that's a puppet. Oh, but he's very wise. Let's make wise puppets. Uh, I think your kids might catch that one if you use that knockoff product. And then moms, if you're cooking, you know, this weekend, you know, the brand, I can't believe it's not butter. You know, you don't want to get the butter stuff. You want to get the stuff that's maybe a little healthier, the chemically produced stuff, you know. And um, instead of getting, I can't believe it's not butter, just get Unbelievable. This is not butter. <laughs> I believe it. I'm not quite sure what's in that container. Or instead of leaving Oreos out for Santa, he'll never know if you just leave Boreos. Okay? <laughs> Boreos until he eats one. And then to get all that stuff off your teeth, don't buy Crest. Just buy Crust. <laughs> crust toothpaste. I'm sure that sells like crazy. What is that on your... And your teeth, they're all, don't worry, that's just, that's just my toothpaste. That's crust. This is the time of the year when we focus, I get more serious now, on the most glorious truths of our faith, the incarnation. The most glorious, one of the most glorious truths of our faith, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, taking on flesh and becoming man. And why did I show you all those things this morning as an illustration? It's because right now, people are offering Hundreds of different knockoff Jesuses during this Christmas season. There's a hundred different knockoff Jesuses, and some of them are easy to detect, and some of them are harder to detect. There's philosopher Jesus, who is seen as a great man, but in no way God. There's guru Jesus, who sits alongside Muhammad and Buddha as one of many paths to God. There's GOP Jesus who bleeds red, white, and blue. On the flip side, there's progressive Jesus who wants to occupy Wall Street. There's Dr. Phil Jesus who has moralistic, therapeutic, 12-step solutions for every problem you might have. There's bleeding heart Jesus who accepts you as you are and wouldn't imagine asking you to get out of your safe place in order to repent. There's bling-bling Jesus who will arrange for you to have the private jet of your dreams if you just have enough faith and say the right words. There's BFF Jesus who pursues you like a lovesick teenager who just needs you to need him. And there's a hundred other knockoff Jesuses that Satan is peddling all throughout the year, but especially at this time of the year. Hopefully, most Bible literate believers can detect such counterfeits. But there's one type of knockoff Jesus that I'm afraid slips under the radar simply because we don't grasp the glory of and the fundamental importance of the doctrine of the incarnation. I think churches have, have accidentally contributed to this knockoff Jesus by, by talking to children about Jesus as if he was a superhero. I remember a VBS curriculum that had a picture of a, of a figure of Jesus or a figure supposedly representing Jesus with his shirt opened up and a big Superman stylized J 
right there on his chest. There's even a kid's song that says, Jesus is my superhero. While I understand the Christ-honoring motives behind such songs and curriculum, I'm afraid that if we accidentally teach children or adults that Jesus is some sort of superhero with superpowers, with superhuman abilities, we may unintentionally blind people to the truth that Jesus was and is 100% man, unlike Superman, whose skin repealed bullets, Jesus' skin broke and bled the moment the nails were hammered into it. Any view that doesn't embrace the full humanity of Jesus Christ is a heretical view. Docetism is the belief that Christ's body was not really a human body. This was an early heresy in the church. They believed it was either a ghost or some supernatural substance, and therefore his sufferings were only apparent. They, were only, they only looked like he was suffering. The docetists were Gnostics, and so anything material they considered to be evil. And so they rejected the idea that Jesus had real flesh and blood and a genuine body. It was probably the docetists that the Apostle John was writing to or had in mind when he wrote 1 John the, the epistle to, uh, called 1 John. 1 John 4, 2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the doctrine of the incarnation is huge. And therefore, the stories of Jesus' birth, the miraculous, unbelievable stories about Jesus' birth are huge. But a very well-known, popular evangelical pastor in our area, and I've prayed this morning whether or not I should say his name, and he influences hundreds of thousands in our area, and many pastors in our area try to copycat him every morning and are doing it this morning. So I'll just say his name. Andy Stanley recently took a shot at the biblical record regarding the supernatural, virginal birth of Jesus Christ. This is what he said. A lot of people don't believe it, and I understand that. Maybe the thought is that they had to come up with some kind of myth about the birth of Jesus to give him street cred later on. Maybe that's where it came from. Now, to be fair, I don't think that Andy Stanley didn't say that's what he believed. But he also went on to say it really didn't matter. He said this, Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. He went on to say it really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. What this pastor does not realize is that without the stories of the virginal birth of Jesus, these miraculous and, yes, extremely hard to believe, impossible to believe in the flesh, stories about the birth of Jesus, we are essentially denying the doctrine of the incarnation. So without these being true, without the miracle of the incarnation, you cannot have a resurrection. That is absolute foolish gibberish that came from that pulpit a few weeks ago. Absolutely. It denies the gospel. C.S. Lewis said that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. Oh, friends, beware of knockoff Jesuses where the incarnation is not important. 
where whether or not Jesus is really man with real flesh and blood really doesn't matter all that much. My desire is for the scripture we study today, this passage we study today, to help us see the importance and absolute necessity of the incarnation. So please stand now as we read Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. The word of the Lord says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, let it be the the rock that we stand on. Heavenly Father, we as a body of believers at Harbors, we confess that we believe in the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that without that, without that miraculous birth, We don't have any ground for the incarnation. We don't have any ground for Jesus, our Savior, being 100% God and 100% man, having a divine nature and a human nature. And so, Lord, we believe that the stories of Christmas are vitally important. So, God, I pray that you would help us now Help me now. Help me to speak this word, this word which has more glory and power and majesty in it than I can even begin to try to communicate. The words fail me. But help me, Lord, to do my best by your strength. And help all of us in here, myself included, to have ears to hear what you speak through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Dorothy Sayers, in 1937, wrote this. The supreme mystery that the word became flesh, that God in the person of Jesus Christ participates unreservedly in the same human nature that we ourselves possess, is at the very center of the Christian faith. All too often, I'm continuing to quote here, all too often, however, modern Christians, and this was in 1937, all too often, however, modern Christians view the incarnation with something closer to consternation. Than wonder. And as a result, they tend to push this grandest of realities from the center to the periphery of their confessions. We can't push the incarnation off to the periphery. The apostles didn't do it, the author of Hebrews didn't do it. The very heart of the gospel depends on the Son taking on true, genuine human flesh. The Bible teaches that he had to take on true, genuine human flesh in order to save us. And one of those places the Bible says that is in the text we just read. 
Now, there's a structure here to the text, and I'm going to bring it back up here on the screen, so hopefully it'll be, we can see the structure a little bit better. There's a structure here to the text that I want you to see before we jump into it. So you can look at it there in your Bibles, or you can look up here on the screens if you want to. Verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that, so little words like that are very important, that, and so now he's about to give us the reason. Matter of fact, he's going to give us two reasons why Jesus had to share in flesh and blood with the children. He's going to give us two reasons why the Son of God partook of flesh and blood. But before we get to those two, I want us to see that in verse 17, verse 17, we have a similar statement. So look down at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that... So again, we have here a a statement that Jesus has to be made flesh and blood for his brothers. Earlier it was the children, now it's the brothers. And again, we see he's going to give us reasons. And again, it's two reasons. Why did he have to be made like his brothers? Why did he have to take on flesh and blood? So we have two mentions of of the son taking on flesh, verse 14. And then in verse 17... In verse 14, he, he does it to partake, to, to share with the children. And in verse 17, it's the brothers, and those are the same thing. That's a parallel statement there. And what we'll see is that the two reasons for the incarnation that follow verse 14, so like I said, there's going to be two reasons here. The two reasons that follow verse 14 are related to the two reasons that follow verse 17. Matter of fact, I believe verse, the two reasons that follow verse 17 explain how the other, the two reasons that follow verse 14 take place. How those things happen. So my goal is to combine all of this and to make two general statements about the incarnation this morning. Now you'll notice that I, I skipped over verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Well, verse 16 parallels the verses that, that, previous, that, fought, that, that came previous to verse 14, the ones we didn't read. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So let me, let me jump back there real quick and, and give a little bit of context before we jump into this text. So, so let your eyes slide back up the, the page of your Bible there to the beginning of chapter 2. And um, let me just walk through the apostles' arguments here. The thesis of this whole epistle to the Hebrews has been that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is superior and supreme. He is superior and supreme. He is, superior, he is the superior word of God. We see that in the very opening of the book. He is superior to angels. And we see that in chapter 2. Later you see he's superior to Moses. He's superior to the old covenant priesthood. He's superior to the temple. And on and on. So here in chapter 2, the apostle is, is talking about Jesus' superior message. And how we are to pay close attention to that message. He then begins to speak of Jesus' superiority to angels and how all created things are in subjection to him, in subjection to Jesus. But how for a while Jesus was made lower than the angels. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2 for me. But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we... We see why. Why was he made lower than angels? It was so that he could take on flesh and die. He could taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews is directly relating 
or, or saying that the reason he was made low is directly connected to uh, his incarnation and the purposes of his incarnation. But he didn't just die and suffer generally for all sinners, nor did he just suffer and die just generically to demonstrate love. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Let me pause there. What's he doing? Who is he dying for? He is bringing many sons to glory. So it's fitting that he is, who is bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So that's how Jesus is doing it. How is he bringing many sons to glory? He is suffering. He is dying. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So the everyone of verse 9 are the brothers mentioned here in verse 11. And it goes on, verse 12. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children. So now the brothers are called children. And we see both of those words repeated in today's text. Both, behold, I and the children God has given me. So Jesus was made lower than the angels for a time so that he might die for people, but for specific people. People called sons in verse 10, called brothers in verses 11 through 12, called children in verse 13. So that helps us understand verse 16 when it says here, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So verse 16 is like verses 1 through 13 in a nutshell. And this word helps here in verse 16. It's an amazing word. It actually means to take hold of by the hand. So in the context here is, is that God is taking us into his hands. It's a verb that expresses his, his affection and his love and his protection. It's a gentle yet powerful picture of our God. Through the sacrificial work of the Son, our God has taken children from man into his hands. That's the picture we have in verse 16. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that God does not do this for angels, but he does it for the offspring of Abraham. And by the context, we know that he's not merely referring to ethnic Jews. Here, the children of Abraham are the people of the new covenant of God who have placed their faith in Christ. John 8, Romans 4, Romans 9, Galatians 3, as we read earlier, all teach the same thing. Circumcision of the heart is more important than circumcision of the flesh. And so all who have faith are counted as children of Abraham, the man of faith. So that means if you are here this morning, you are a person who has placed his or her faith in Christ, then you are one of the ones that God helps. You're one of the ones that God has taken into his hands. And Jesus had to partake of humanity. He had to take on flesh and blood in order to make it happen. But why did he have to do so? Well, that's where we get to today's text. God, because of the love he has for his people, took on genuine flesh in order to, and here's our first point, die a genuine human death and thereby eradicate our enemy. Die a genuine human death, a real human death, in order to eradicate our enemy. Verse 14. Since therefore the children, those are the ones we've just been talking about, just hopefully laid the groundwork for who the children are. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook. He, the Son of God, partook. It wasn't that he, he shared flesh and blood. That would imply he'd always had it. But he partook of it, meaning he willfully had to take on human flesh. And the change in verb tense here from the perfect, which is used for the verb share, to the aorist, 
which is used for the verb partook, suggests that Christ's taking on of human nature was a specific act in time. He became what he was not before. In his immutable, unchangeable divine essence, he did not change. But rather, he took on a human nature without mixing the two. And that is important. Another knockoff Jesus is Apollinarianism, which is the heresy that teaches that there was some sort of divine mixing of the human nature and the divine nature to create a superman, a half-god, a half-man. And that's just another knockoff. He didn't cease to be God, but rather he partook of humanity. He took on a human nature while never ceasing to have a divine nature. That's where we get that phrase that we say sometimes, 100% God, 100% man. The one person, Jesus Christ, has two distinct natures, divine and human. In theology, this is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union, and it is vital to the gospel, as we're about to see. So we read here that he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is the flesh and blood. That, so here's our first reason, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He died a genuine human death to eradicate our enemy. So the first reason the son took on flesh is so that he could destroy the one who has the power of flesh, uh, power of death. First John 3, 8 says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Our greatest enemy is Satan, and his greatest weapon is death. Now, this immediately raises a question in our mind. What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? Doesn't the Bible say that life and death are in God's hands? Deuteronomy 32, 29, the Lord speaking. The Lord says, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Job 14, 5, Psalm 90, verse 3, Psalm 139, 16, Acts 17, 26, Revelation 1, 18, and I'm sure there's many more, teach the exact same truth. That life and death are in the hands of God. And then in Job chapter 2, verse 6, and Luke chapter 12, verse 5, that makes it clear that the devil has to even ask permission from God before inflicting harm on anybody. So how can the devil have the power of death? Well, Satan is the author, the introducer of death among mankind. And in that sense, he is, as Jesus says in John eight forty four, a murderer from the beginning. He did not cause Adam and Eve to die, but rather he tempted them to sin... And it is for their sin that they died, spiritually and physically. And the curse of death was passed on to every man. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So death is Satan's constant, in-your-face reminder of your sin. And Satan does all he can to help man be blind to his sin... To live in his sin and even to love his sin so that he will never turn from it. With the aim that he will remain in it and die in it. And therefore experience eternal conscious death in hell which is the wages of sin. So death is indeed his weapon. That's Satan's power. For we were born dead in our trespasses and into the domain of darkness. 
And so that's why Jesus had to take on flesh. He had to die our death and thus defeat death and the devil. But why does his death accomplish that? Here's, what I want you, well, here's where I want you now to jump down to verse 17. So in your Bibles, jump down to verse 17. And I want us to see the how now. So we know what he's done. He, he's eradicated. He's, he's destroyed the devil. He's eradicated our enemy. But how? How did he do that? The two reasons that come after verse 17 help explain that. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Okay, so that says basically the same thing as verse 14. So that... And so here's the reason that corresponds and expands upon the first reason we saw in verse 14. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen to this. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here's the logic of the connections. How does Jesus do, verse 14, how is it that through death he destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil? He does it by becoming a merciful and faithful high priest who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. The Old Testament high priest was an intercessor between God and man. He was the one who stood in the gap, if you will, the one who represented man to God and God to man, the one who interceded for his brothers and the one who offered the required sacrifices to God. But why did Jesus have to take on human flesh in order to become our high priest? The answer is simple. Because the offering that Jesus, our high priest, had to give in order to satisfy God eternally was the sacrifice of himself, was the offering of himself. He's not only the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. He needed to be a perfect, sinless, human high priest so that he could lay down his perfect, sinless, human life as a death-destroying sacrifice. For that was the only way that sin and the death that follows it could be dealt with. The book of Hebrews has so much more to say about Jesus' priesthood and the sacrifice of himself. We don't have time to get into it this morning. Let me just give you a little taste of it. Hebrews seven twenty six. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, referring to the old covenant high priest, To offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 26. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This means that he not only had to be fully human, but fully divine as well. For he had to be a sinless, righteous, perfectly holy sacrifice. This type of sacrifice is the only sacrifice that can fully and finally accomplish verse 17, where we read that he makes propitiation for the sins of his people. What is propitiation? It's not a theologically popular word today, but it is a thoroughly biblical word. And quite simply, it means to placate, to appease, or to set aside God's wrath, God's holy, hot, Hatred and anger towards sin and sinners who do not repent. Seeing that this is the key to understanding how the death of Christ strips the devil of his power in death. Okay, I'm sorry, seeing this is the key to understanding all of this. For Jesus, it says, disarmed the devil, put him to open shame and triumphed over him by taking away God's anger at us for our sins. And how did he do it? 
by absorbing God's wrath upon himself when he died on that cross. Remember, Satan is the accuser. And his desire is to indict us for our sin before God and therefore have the sentence of death pronounced over us. And his plan works unless an innocent, sinless substitute comes who can take God's anger against sin in our place. And that's what Jesus did. And that's why he had to have real flesh that took real nails, that experienced real agony. And suffered real death as a substitute for real people like you and me. A superman could not save us. Only a real man could. And when he absorbed God's wrath for the children, for the brothers, God's justice was satisfied. His wrath was propitiated. And Satan lost his claim on us. This is the great gospel. This is our salvation. So now Satan can't use death. He has no accusation to bring. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, doesn't not, this does not mean that Christians don't die physical deaths, sometimes very painful ones. What it does mean is that death has lost its sting. What once was a doorway into eternal wrath is now a doorway into eternal joy. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 teaches us to, that to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the incarnation, friends, is pretty important. I'm sorry, Andy. It's very, very important. These Christmas stories are hugely important. Now let me give us one more. Um, let us move on quickly here to our second general observation. So God, because of the love that he has for his people took on genuine flesh in order to die a genuine human death and thereby eradicate our enemy. And secondly, to live a genuine human life and thereby emancipate us from our slavery. So Jesus came to destroy the devil. And then verse 15, and, here's the second one, and deliver all those who through death, I'm sorry, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he came to destroy and deliver, to eradicate, to emancipate. What is the slavery we are liberated from in verse 15? What is the author of Hebrews speaking of here? We're talking about the slavery of sin. And sin produces death. And thus all men fear death. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Titus 3, 3 says that we were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. 2 Peter 2, 19 speaks of us, of the lost, being slaves to corruption. And then we read earlier in Galatians 4, 3 in the service that we were once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. God's children who have been saved by the incarnational work of Christ at one time lived in fear, fear of death, death we knew we faced because of our separation from God. And whether they admit it or not, all men fear death. All men try to satisfy their fear in some sort of way. A prize-winning secular book from decades ago called The Denial of Death states this, and this is a secular book. The fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death. 
to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. So there's a secular author that realizes and that recognizes that all men fear this death. Man tries to deny the fear of death in a thousand ways, but always fails. Bondage to sin, bondage to the sin debt that all men know that they have in their hearts. They know that the, that the debt is coming due, but it's a debt we cannot pay back. Apart from Christ, how does one try to deal with that debt? He or she begins to bargain with God. Trying to do enough, just enough to escape hell by doing the right religious stuff or by simply being a good person. And so on and so on and such and such. Man does whatever they can to try to deal with the guilt of sin without turning to Christ. And God's law, God's law simply serves to expose the fact that man is in bondage to it. And that he can do nothing to free himself from his sin. Only Jesus can free him. And so we read earlier in Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation. But the verses right after that, and I want to read this here in a second. I'm going to go to Romans 8. The verses right after that say that, that um, and I'm going to read this section here in a second, that this condemnation that we've been freed of doesn't free us from the temptation to go back to that same slavery. So let me, read it. Let, me, let me read to you what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 2. For the law, this is right after Romans 8, 1, which talks about no condemnation. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So we've been set free. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't free us from this bondage. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. There's the incarnation. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So that's the truth. That's the freedom that's been purchased for us through the incarnation. But then jump down to Romans 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Listen to this. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Fear. That sounds like uh, the verse from today's text about fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here's where I see the connection. So we've seen in verse 17 that Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That's how he destroys the works of the devil. And there's no more condemnation, as Romans 8.1 tells us. But then we read in verse 18... For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So as I read that text this week, I'm looking at verse 17, which sounds so final. And then I look at verse 18, which talks about helping us with our temptations. And I'm trying to figure out how do those two things go together. If death has been absorbed, has been dealt with as, as, our, as God's wrath was absorbed on our behalf by Christ, why this mention of helping us with our temptation? Why, why is that needed if the consequences of sin have been dealt with. And so I was reminded of Romans 8, and I was also reminded of Romans 6, that teaches that even though we have, have defeated sin in Christ, we must still strive not to live in sin. We must fight not to live in the flesh, 
not to give in to the sin that remains in us. So both Romans 6 and Romans 8 warn us not to give in to sin and fall back into slavery. And so when you read today's text, that not only did Jesus take on flesh to destroy the devil, but also deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, I see that deliverance as a very practical, day-by-day deliverance from sin, a deliverance that, that does not, cannot come from us pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps or just performing better for God, which is itself the slavery of legalism. No, it comes from God, from his spirit, and from what we read in verse 18. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's the deliverance. There's the deliverance from lifelong slavery. And thus the fear of what sin incurs. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you go back to the flesh and you think you can please God in your flesh and you continue to live that way, you are denying the gospel and your soul is in danger. It's really that simple. You cannot live in the flesh. You cannot give in to the flesh. You have to fight the flesh. You have to fight sin. Romans 8 goes on to tell us we have to kill sin. So how do we put sin to death? How do we deal with these things? We cry out to Jesus in faith who lived a sinless life in our place and we trust that he will help us in our time of need. We cry out to him. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And so we fall on our faces and say, I can't defeat this in my flesh. And so I'm turning to you in faith, Jesus, because you have defeated it. You lived the perfect life I can't live. Hebrews makes this connection later in Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest. So here's the connection of the high priestly work and the ability to live a holy life. Verse uh, 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Listen to this, verse 16. Let us then, in light of that glorious truth, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's how we kill sin. Right there. That's how we break free from the slavery of legalism and the bondage of having to do good works. At least doing good works to please God in some sort of way earn his merit. No. Our good works flow out of the help that Jesus gives us. Because he's been tempted just like we have been. Oh, friend, Jesus took on flesh and was tempted so that he could help us with our temptations, empower us to kill sin and grow in holiness. So listen to this. Not only does your justification, that is your being declared not guilty before God, rest on the incarnation, so too does your sanctification, your growing in the holiness of God, rest on the incarnation. Because he lived in a real human body, He can sympathize with our weaknesses and our human failings. He, in his humanity, experienced the full gamut of human affections and emotions, love, joy, even sorrow and dread. And physically, his was not a body free from hunger and thirst and cold and pain and death itself. And therefore, he helps those who are his. And so when we face temptation, we cry. We cry out to our Abba, Father, and we cry to our Savior in faith, trusting that he has defeated sin, and he can help us. He can deliver us from bondage. 
Jesus never gave in to temptation, which means the pressure never let up. We eventually cave when temptation gets too strong, but not Jesus. He never caved, so he really, he really knows how to suffer under temptation. He really knows how to fight sin. He really knows the difficulty involved in fighting sin because he never gave in. That's whose help I want. In preparation for this sermon, I, I heard um, someone speak of a former pastor who had fallen into some serious sexual sin. And how a year later, he was leading a seminar for pastors on how to avoid sexual sin. Believe it or not. I'm sure that guy has some pointers. Some things he's learned from his failure. And may be able to help some men somewhat. But I want better help than that. I want help from someone who has never sinned. I want help from someone who has never given in. That's the help I need. This is why accountability groups are only as good as our walk with Jesus in our prayer life. I don't need help from those two or three other men who fail just like I do as much as I need help from Jesus and cry out to him in my prayer life and being in the word. If I come to my accountability group having done that, that's a good accountability group. If I come to my accountability group without having done that and hope that these guys can keep me on the straight and narrow, I'm in big trouble. Anything less than a fully human mediator cannot help me. Anything less than a fully human deliverer cannot save me. There can be no knockoff Jesuses. Don't buy what the world is selling. Jesus, the one who came into that manger as a baby, born of a virgin over 2,000 years ago, must be fully man and fully God. Two natures, human and divine. Son of man, born to man, yet son of God, God, born of a virgin. God, because of the love he has for his people in the person of the Son, took on genuine human flesh to die a genuine human death and thereby eradicate our enemy and live a genuine human life and thereby emancipate us from slavery. The incarnation is no little doctrine. Don't buy the knockoff Jesus that says that the incarnation is no big deal. That says these Christmas stories aren't that important. If you do, you will eventually walk away from the gospel. Knock off Jesus will lead you to hell. Oh, Christian, let God's word today stir us up with new awe and wonder as we go about this day celebrating the birth of our Savior. And unbeliever in here, let me call you to repentance. You know you are going to die. All men do. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. That's the accuser's great weapon hanging over your head this morning. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Through Jesus the God-man. For only Jesus, perfect and divine, could die in your place and forgive your sins. And only Jesus, risen and exalted, can help you live a joy-filled life to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our service this morning with a time of singing and a time of response. Lord, examine our hearts to see if there's any knockoffs that we've bought. Help us not to make light of these Christmas stories by either minimizing them because they're so amazing and miraculous and the world doesn't like miracles and stories about Virgins having babies. 
Nor, Father, do let, a, let us not minimize them by simply being so familiar with them that it just becomes kid things that we talk about once a year. That we set up little figurines to celebrate. Lord, let the incarnation be a massive doctrine that's the foundation underneath our feet all year long. As we trust in and believe in and keep coming back to and reminding ourselves that we have been justified by the incarnational work of Christ, but also as we continue to grow in holiness and fight our sin and want to become better husbands and, and better fathers and better people, members of the church, and we, we do all this, better citizens, whatever it might be, we cannot do that without the incarnation of Christ either. So Lord, may the incarnation be the doctrine that foundational doctrine under our feet all year long. So we praise you and we thank you for those that could be here this morning. Thank you, Lord, we could celebrate the incarnation of Christ together on December 25th. It's wonderful to be here. I thank you, Lord, for this group that's here that wanted to be in church on Christmas Day. Oh, Lord, don't ever, ever let us stray into what the world says. Jesus should look like and what, how Christmas should be celebrated. Instead, let us stand on the rock-solid truth that our Savior, Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came miraculously as a baby, humble, innocent, and vulnerable. And because of that, he was able to die that perfect death that we needed. So God, we thank you this morning. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes not only on the cradle, but on the cross this Christmas day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.